Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Andy Fitzell, your co-host, alongside Steve Smith. This is episode 22. This is the first in a two-part series about tennis in Russia. Tennis in Russia. Tennis in Russia. Russians in tennis. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's go through some notes here. Next week, we're going to uh, interview Natalia Sorkin. She's yeah. from, from Moscow. She plays a junior. She trained at the famous Spartak Club. Yeah. She knows the story of many successful Russian players. She's been through her training. She completed an internship with us about five years ago. Four children, her and her husband. Mm-hmm. She visits periodically. Right now she's here for three weeks with a uh, young daughter. I say here in Florida. She lives currently in Southern California. Her daughter's name is Taisia. Yeah. She's really a testament to the Great Base. She has an Instagram account. Um, yeah, she's, Taisia Tennis. Taisia Tennis. Can you spell that? It's a... Uh, we'll do it next week. I got it. You got it. Good. T-A-I-S-I-Y-A Tennis. I love names like that. Taisia. Yeah. When your name is Steve Smith, Taisia. Got to sing it. Taisia. Taisia. Uh, Steve Roberts, Dave Anderson, Mark Walpole, Jimmy Johnson, and a list of others who we've trained have worked with uh, Taisia. Mm-hmm. Tell you, Natalia, I would say, is the architect. Uh, obviously, uh, Alexei, the husband as well, but brick by brick. Um, yeah. Developed tennis player, part of the next week's story. Yeah. First met Natalia, and, and you were part of that. A group of us went to Tennis Memphis, a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, our group was there for 24 months, but she came in, did an internship. Um, before she arrived, um, well, she had been there the first time with her children. Somebody at a tournament told her, uh, her two boys that. came, and at that time, Tasia was um, uh, just four years old. Maxim Valentine. Yeah. The, um, but anyway, she came back to do an internship. Uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal, Dan, uh, Daniel Coyle's book, uh, I have some notes on that here, Spartak. Yeah, Talent Code. Well, it's in the book, his book, Talent Code, but then again, there's... Maybe it was just a chapter that was... Uh, right, the article. The article, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I sent a letter to our note email to the parents of the players in Tennis Memphis and said that she was coming. Mm-hmm. Spartak, here it comes. Mm-hmm. Fitness, toughness. The kids were shocked. But mm-hmm. I had previously employed three fitness trainers from Russia, and I knew that she would bring that same intensity. Yeah. Russia... From Russia with love. Mother Russia. I had this down to go through. I, starting with ice hockey, for me, in the 1960s, my father was a student of hockey, so therefore he was certainly interested in Russian hockey. He was a youth coach for decades. Mm-hmm. As a hobby, he followed college hockey. I'll tell you how dedicated he was. He was a civil engineer, had an antenna on his car. We're talking a big antenna. <laughs> and he would go to the highest hill in the nearest county, to listen to college hockey games on the radio. This was in the 60s. In the 60s. He also had an antenna on our uh, TV in this little community in upstate New York. We were the only house in the village that got a hockey night in Canada because we would just, you could just hear, hear the whole house turn when you would just turn the antenna. Um, my oldest brother, Mike, he got a PhD in Russian studies. He lived at home after, uh, um, after undergraduate school. And that was really to study hockey, right? Is that well? Was he, he really interested in in Russian 
um, studies. <laughs> you'd have to ask him. I think so. I, yeah. I always think of him as a, as a, as a fellow jock, yeah. not uh, a PhD candidate. We tease hockey players, like in the locker room. My mother did a lot of typing, so I used to say that they got a PhD together. 50% his and 50% hers. With, um, but through that, he studied hockey. And the, the Russians were so successful yeah. and so creative. Uh, he wrote 10 books on hockey. The first one was called Dry Land Training for Ice Hockey. That's amazing. In 1972, the Russians came to Canada. They played the NHL All-Stars and proved that they were highly, highly competitive. At that time, I remember there was only 22 hockey rinks in the entire country. I should be able to tell you the godfather of Russian hockey, but he, he was quoted saying he'd like to th- thank the Canadians for inventing hockey so we could develop it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started off as a practice coach because he knew Russian drills with the New York Rangers. been from that blossom to career in the NHL, mm-hmm. assistant coach, scout. Um, for short, short stint, he was a head coach, but he was the GM of two NHL teams, an associate GM of a third. This is funny. He um, used to get the Russian newspaper called the Pravda. <laughs> I was a little kid. The FBI, two guys knock on the door. I was the only guy home. <laughs> this is back in the Cold War, Russia. Yeah. And um, you know, they came back another time, talked to my parents, but um, they were just checking out my brother. We used to tease him because. Uh, like, why are you getting this Russian newspaper? Especially in small town, New York. Especially when you can't, you couldn't read a word, <laughs> couldn't read a word of the Russian. Yeah. Um, so through that, I had an introduction to uh, Soviet sports with just how the whole system worked, mm. and we'll, we'll certainly um, get into that. Now, Natalia, um, she'd have to talk to her parents more than you know the the, the Russians of today, right? Because in 1989, I have that in my notes. We'll go through it: the yeah. fall of communism. Um, I always thank my Aunt Ronnie for the fall of communism. She used to say the rosary all day, every day. Seriously, she'd be saying the rosary. And I'd, always, I'd always say, who are you praying for? She used to say, I'm praying for the Russians. They don't have freedom. Hmm. So when she passed away, I told the, told the people at the funeral that uh, there were a lot of Russians have to thank my, yeah. thank our Aunt Ronnie. Yeah. But in the, 1970, in the 1970s, Alex Metrovelli, USSR, um, He's really from Georgia, but he was considered a Russian. 1962. Yeah, Georgia the country. Georgia the country, right, right. Wondering, listener. So he, he won Junior Wimbledon in 62, number nine in the world eventually. In 1973, there was a boycott. Wimbledon, the ATP pros. Mm. Uh, Nikki Pilich, um had refused to play Davis Cup for the former Yugoslavia. And the players uh, joined together and... Those who were not a member of the ATP or did not support the boycott played Wimbledon. But he was a very good tennis player. I remember watching him one time at Boca Raton uh, at one of Bill Reardon's tournaments just for a week. Uh, came there early and practiced with uh, Vitas Gerolaitis. Also in the 70s, it just let us know that there was tennis in Russia. Olga Morozova, um, she was from Moscow. She got to the finals of the French in Wimbledon in 74. She won the French doubles with Everett in 74, number seven in the world. Metrovelli and Morozova were in the Wimbledon mix in 68 and 70. Hmm. Uh, but um, 
it's interesting what happened in 1975, Martina Naraslova from the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia, I should say, from Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Yeah. 18 years old, she defects for political asylum. In those time, in those years, we use the terms you know, behind the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, 1943, Yalta, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. So Czechoslovakia had been considered a, a puppet nation controlled by Mother Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely there was political issues between the East and the West. You know, we in the U.S. being from the West, yep. um, all of Western Europe. But certainly there was conflicts between the East and the East, so Russia and, and Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. For example, Nastasi, the jokester from Romania, Jan Kodish was a great um, Czechoslovakian player. Right. And Nastasi, he used to call him the Russian. Get under his skin a little bit. The, the uh, tennis was suppressed it, it, uh, during um, many years of uh, Soviet rule. But Czechoslovakia, Drobny won Wimbledon in 1954, and, and tennis uh, was very popular in Czechoslovakia and also in parts of Yugoslavia, but not all over Eastern Europe. Um, here would be an example of the conflict between Russia and Czechoslovakia. In 68, the Russians... Uh, invaded Czechoslovakia. The famous hockey player, Jager, that's why he always wore number 68. Mm. Um, around that time, it was actually in 75, one of the best junior players in the world was a girl named Shimriva. I saw her at the Orange Bowl. She was expected to be a sure thing on the Pro Tour. But after Naratilova from Czechoslovakia defi- defected, um, you didn't really hear much of uh, junior tennis players from the USSR for a while. The speculation was that players did have they, they didn't have the freedom to travel, mm. um, not to uh, travel at their own free will, and also like Naratilova, besides not being able to set her own t- schedule, she could not control her own winnings, her own yeah. money. Yeah. Um, in the in the Soviet Union, everything was representing the flag, and the biggest thing were Olympic sports. Tennis was an Olympic sport between eighteen ninety six and nineteen twenty four. In 1968 and 1984, tennis was an Olympic sport. In 88, uh, that's when Graf won the Golden Grand Slam. She right. won uh, four Grand Slams plus Wimbledon. So it was... Plus the Olympics, right? In the Olympics. So yeah. she... Um, so in 88, it was official. The, it was Olympics gold was available for the Russians. Boris Yeltsin, USSR, Soviet Union, president 91 to 99. He loved tennis. So as if tennis was reinstated and promoted through Yeltsin. But at the same time, people wanted to travel. Just one out of curiosity, uh, just just freedom. Um, then when one, one Russian player was successful, the next Russian player would want to be successful. Yeah. Here's the Berlin Wall, the fall of communism. Uh, the government through Eastern Europe opened up. It was in 1989. Prior to that, again, it was very difficult for people to leave. There was so much uh, toughness on, on border control. Money was a problem. And I, I remember going to other countries to study tennis. With um, On the black market, a tennis coach was making anywhere between two dollars $300 a month, and that's what they would get if they sold a, a modern racket on, on the, the black, black market. market. Yeah. yeah. 
I first went to uh, Russia in 1987, USSR. I traveled from Germany. I was teaching tennis in Germany. The U.S. dollar wasn't very strong. And I was just, you know, curious to study uh, Russian sport. But when I went, I had to go with a tourist group. So I went with a group of Germans and you had to stay in one hotel. You know, just rode one bus. I had the trip endorsed by the ITF. Doug McCurdy, an American at the time, was the director of development for the ITF. Uh, we talked about early podca- earlier podcast, CompuTennis. Yeah. Um, I took CompuTennis. It was just, Doug said, you know, why don't you do what you can do, uh, share ideas of coaching expertise. When I entered the country, going through the border check, the aliases of the security, they disassembled the, the laptop computer right in front of me. <laughs> I had to strip to my underwear. Felt like I was in a movie. Um, the meeting was a no-show. The I, the tennis meeting was a no-show. But my older brother, um, so through his, um, going back to his position in hockey, there used to be this term with Bobby Orr who came into the game in the 60s. He really opened up the game and was a rushing defenseman. He'd carry the puck from one end to the next. Hmm. So... People used to say, it's not that my brother liked rushing defensemen. He liked Russians. <laughs> but he became the uh, GM of Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Jets. At that time, um, small market. They didn't have the, the big-time dollars. There wasn't market sharing. And um, they had to bring the Russians in. And obviously, they were skilled and, and worthy of every opportunity because of their skill level. But they were paid less because they played in Winnipeg. Mm. Um but again, so the tennis meeting was a no-show, but my brother gave me advice, uh, very good directions. He said, just call this number. Don't say one word. <laughs> just say the number of your hotel room. <laughs> and because the, the tourists would just come in, you'd just stay in the Red Square, stay in your one hotel. It would be all tourists in that one hotel. <laughs> and you just would ride the one bus over and over again, seeing all the beautiful sights around just the Red Square. Yeah. So a day later, there's a knock on the hotel door. It was a nice nice gentleman in Russian, obviously, by the name of Nick. Um, he was shocked that I had got through border control, you know, like maybe 12, 15 magazines, newspapers, all about tennis. And he mm-hmm. was not uh, he, he was not a tennis guy. He was a hockey guy. But um, I can remember him unbuckling his pants and putting them in his pants. There was so much paranoia. He, he was nervous just to be in the hotel, and he dressed like a Westerner. It was like Western the clothes. Yeah, I mean, they were all um, in English. But when they when I went through the border and they took away, they took apart copy tennis and were focused on that. Yeah, they just slipped and didn't go through uh, some of the rest <laughs> of my luggage. Um, with. Um, yeah, back in those days, I worked at a college, but in the summers, I did some different youth unique things and spent a lot of time overseas. And um, I would have my mail sent to me. There was no internet and no yeah, yeah. emails and that type of thing. Yeah. But he was not supposed to be in the hotel. With, the Russian was not supposed to be near the tourists. Hmm. I mean, I can remember going for a run um, in the Red Square at night. And having the headlights come after me, jeeps coming after me, and you don't, you know, no, no, no. Is it? There was no running in the red square after midnight in those days. Um, that was in '87, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it, there was a constant feeling of paranoia um, through Nick, but just, just 
in general. In general yeah. um, you know, it's really government. You know, you get to meet uh, people from Russia, from China, from different parts of the world where there are um, different forms of government. And but people are people. They just want to, yeah. in our world, they just want to hit some tennis balls. Yeah. You know, make sure their family's okay, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But through Nick, I saw all these different tennis centers in Moscow. I mean, I was taken to the to Spartak, but at that time, I mean, I saw little or no coaching. Um, I did see crowded courts with recreational players. And in 87, they were all playing with old wooden rackets. Um, I had several rackets with me, and I just gave them to Nick, which I, was like giving him gold. Hmm. Um, through him, I saw many different sports. It was summertime. Moscow's very flat. I can remember uh, the dedication of these uh, cross-country skiers with, I mean, metal wheels, uh, just outdated, primitive equipment. Hmm. Um, but again, I saw numerous, numerous sports through him. And um, I can remember he took us to the Moscow, say us. I went with an assistant coach and a former girlfriend. And so anyway, with that, uh, went to the Boston, or not the Boston, the, the Moscow Marathon. And the shoes that they were wearing, um, it was like they were 20 years outdated. I think that's where, I mean, we use that phrase a lot, comfortable is a curse. You know, even you think about, okay, you know, when Rocky goes over. Rocky Four. You know, when he goes over to fight Drago. Yeah. Natalia has been helping us with fitness, and she had some kids shadow boxing the other day. And yeah. They're uh, up in the gym, and I said, hey, romp her and tell her Rocky won. Yeah. Rocky beat the Russian. But I think that's, you know, again, coming from nothing or coming from circumstances that are not perfect or ideal or country club. That's part of the grit. You know, I think that's part of the reason why they want to get out of there and work as hard as they do, right? I think that's part of the success. No, for sure. For sure. That's part of Daniel Coyle's uh, Russian formula. Yeah. Number four is cultural toughness. Yeah. Um, I always say today, and asking you, there's more billionaires in Moscow than any other city in the world. I always say there's two types of Russians today. They're rich and poor. Mm. But the difference is the rich Russians are still hungry. And it's like, why? Yeah. But I think that's why it'll be interesting to talk to Natalia next week. Yeah. Here's a funny story, not to digress. So I'm at an athlete. You got to remember, this is 1987, Cold War in Moscow, different world, don't know anybody. Yeah. And I'm, I'm at a tennis facility, and I just hear my name shouted out. Here once, here twice. I'm just going, no. Um, actually, just a few years ago. Like Steve Smith or Smith? Steve Smith. Yeah. Smith. And it's like, okay, I hear it. <laughs> but I, I spent four months, about five years ago, going to all these uh, tennis Europe tournaments. And it, it was really interesting. Tennis was a small place. I didn't go one place where I didn't know somebody. Yeah. You think, okay, I'm in Slovenia. Who do I know in Slovenia? Yeah. But um, Ian Hamilton, he was a leader with Nike, Nike Promotions. I was endorsed by Nike at the time. So, so again, through the coaching for my older brother i was told don't trade anything for rubles and you know the currency at that time wouldn't have really been worth much and in the stores there wasn't anything to buy anyway mm-hmm. so um i had trained traded my nike shoes to a street entrepreneur street merchant like so that during the day entrepreneur so that during the day nick was taking us around and at night um it, it, these guys worked out great, but I was just told my brother, you know, wear blue jeans, top siders, 
lacoste shirt, anything that says USA. And of course, warm-ups with the USPTA, the USPTR. Mm. Uh, so anyway, I meet the famous Phil Knight. He says, Steve, this is Phil Knight. I shake his hands. He looks right at my shoes. And I was wearing a very old, old pair of Capa shoes. So yeah, Capa shoes. I, I tried to explain to Phil, but he, he didn't smile. He didn't think it was nice <laughs> that I wasn't wearing Nike. Um, Capa shoes. They used to have those little, like, uh, snap-on things. You, you had time twice. Color, you know? <laughs> Remember, they did have pairs that you had to... Uh, but through those street entrepreneurs, uh, it was interesting. We saw the real mm-hmm. Moscow, got on city bus and left the the area where the, just we, were, we were restricted as tourists. Hmm. Standard of living at that time was very, very low. Um, there was no bubble gum. I can remember being told, you know, you take penny uh, bubble gum, spend $10, you get 1,000 pieces of bubble gum. So I took lots of bubble gum. <laughs> uh, with another time, we were, uh, the three of us were just walking the streets, and um, this gentleman was following us. I like to consider myself to be observant. You know, our mentor, Vic Braden, used to call me the observer's observer. Mm-hmm. So this guy was following us. So girlfriend and assistant coach, they walk ahead. They don't know. They're just chatting away, and I slow down. So we go around a, go around a corner, <laughs> and then I just get right behind a, a barrier, you know, like a door. We're just, just, you know, a very safe place on a main street. Yeah. And then I was walking behind him yeah. and went right up to him and go, what do you want? Yeah. And in broken English, he said, I want to trade for your blue jeans, for your blue <laughs> jeans. Um, and? No trading, no trading with that gentleman. <laughs> but uh, uh, the reason we are the best is in the, is lies in the Russian character. We are more resilient. Alexander Volkov. Just some quotes to get going here. Mm. Yes, Vic Braden. You ask an American kid to practice for two hours, and they practice for one. You ask a Russian kid to practice for two hours, and they practice for three. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, Daniel Coyle. Recommend you read the Talent Code, especially tennis parents. Yeah. And he studies small pockets around the world, whether it's chess or violin. Uh, some. You know, discipline is like, why are they so, so successful here? And he went, he went to Moscow, went to this Spartak club where Natalia will talk to us about that. Yeah. The Russian formula is early start, driven parents, powerful, consistent coaching, cultural toughness. Yeah. Now, we put a formula to that where you get one for each. And so, uh, say, say a young kid from the U.S., Germany, Canada, doesn't really matter. They get a one for an early start. I'll say they're eight years old, they've started playing tennis. Mm -hmm. And driven parents, it doesn't mean crazy parents, driven parents. And if your parents are getting you up and they're driving you to tennis practice and this and that, you've got driven parents. Mm -hmm. I think in the sport I grew up in, you have to have parents that are a little more driven because the really little kids, they've got to practice seriously, 5 a.m. Three in the morning, you got to leave. But powerful, consistent coaching. Um, In the former Soviet Union, and then Natalia could talk to us about Russia today. I've been there many times since. Is powerful, consistent coaching. There's no, you know, bopping and shopping and going from one coach to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, cultural toughness. Cultural toughness. That's where I think we're really in this country and other countries as well. Is you know, I always tell a story about this one young kid. Summertime, he came every day, packed a luncheon. He brought a coconut water for me. 
coconut water. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the kids have a little plastic card and they're charging, you know, the $20 lunch to the money yeah. to their uh, parents' account. Um, with Yeah, so, I mean, for parents listening, what's the advice? I mean, how do you take some of that toughness and instill it into your kids? How much do you give them? Yeah, my old brother used to say this, and I'm sure you know, he heard it from so many people that, it's tough to have rich parents and poor kids. Yeah. Uh, Macron stole the line affluenza. Hmm. You know, when you know kids are affluent, or I should say the parents are affluent, the kids are the ones with affluenza. Yeah. I mean, um, like you always, you bring this up a lot that when you were young, I know I had jobs when I was young, you know, just that was a normal thing where you try to, you know, get a summer job or any little thing to earn money, paper out, mowing lawns, but it doesn't happen too much these days. Well, even when you say I'm old, sixty-six, so Jeez. you know, you say to a parent, it is old." When you say it out loud like that, sixty-six, going on seventy, nah, baby. That's I was vaccinated today. Yeah, I asked the nurse, and she said, kidding. "Didn't have to even get out of the car to digress." She said, "It's for sixty-five and over." <laughs> oh my word! Well, the part that we're going to digress here a little bit because this was—it felt a little bit strange. But the part that got me was when I was like, "Okay, what do we do now?" And she just says, "Well." Just go park right over there and wait for 15 minutes. Wait? Yeah, just to see if anything happens. <laughs> like, oh, okay, if he has a reaction, I said, well, what if something does happen? She goes, oh, well, there's paramedics and, you know, medical people right over there. Like, oh, all right, thanks. But that the, was interesting today, so. Yeah, yeah, all oh, the world. With, um, we've been fortunate that so many people have had it so tough. Yeah. Teaching pros, teaching pros being out of work. With um, the term brown bag. Hey, kid, just brown bag it. Yeah, brown you know, bag But it. now the parents don't even know it. I mean, and it goes, I mean, I had a Russian kid from, many Russian kids, one from uh, Canada, and um, you know, asked the parents, can he peel his own banana? Mm. So you could become, quote, unquote, Americanized and become very soft very quick. But brown bag means you're going to pack your own lunch. Yeah. But the, the Daniel Coyle, it may have been the, uh, the Wall Street Journal, but it, 99%, um, is New York Times, but all you need to do, listeners, is just Google How to Grow a Super Athlete by Daniel Coyle. Yeah. And that's the the article that um, really went went around the world. Yeah. Now, we'll have Natalia go the pronunciation of these names for us, but uh, from the Spartak Club, the small pocket. Oh, you got this. You go for it. <laughs> You go because I'm I'm lost on our notes here. I'll, I'll go with the first I name. I'll, I'll go with the first name. I'm not even trying second name. Larissa. Yeah. It's, oh, you mean the last name here? Yeah. Prebrajeskaya. Pre- One more time for the top. Jeskaya. Okay. Larissa Prebrajeskaya. That's what I'm going for. All right. Technique is everything. What a great quote. Yeah. Um, three years, three hours a day is a thousand hours a year. Competition can wait. There will always be tournaments. In Russia, tennis is still a sport. In the U.S., far too often, it's first and only a business. It makes me cry to say that. But Yeah, so, I mean, the kids at that Spartak club didn't play competitively for the first. Yeah, they call shadow swinging imitations. Yeah. 3,000 3, hours before playing points. 3,000 hours yeah. of practice. Mom and dad, 3,000 hours of practice. Yeah, imitatia, I think. I don't know. With, uh, that's, you know, not going to fly. I heard you say to Natalia, that's not going to fly in America. Yeah. 
Uh, one theme in the U.S. is it's not play to learn. Excuse me, I get this right. It's a play on words. Yeah. In the U.S., UTA, governing body tennis, a lot of great people, a lot of great causes, but, 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 um, we're going to play to learn. We're not going to learn to play. Yeah. And you got you got to do both. Um, Americans are around the world. This makes me cry as well, and that's part of our mission with the Great Base or the mission with the Great Base. We used to say we'd like to have more American kids be able to play American college tennis. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sad that, you know, college tennis, not necessarily that we have foreign players, but that we have 60%, 60% Um, anyway, with that, um, it's, it's around the world. It's, it's, you know, a little bit of a joke that how we, how we train players. And a side note too, it was cool with Daniel Coyle when his first, when his book first came out, I was teaching at the Big Braden Tennis College. A couple of students came in and I got to talk to them about myelin, which I know we'll talk about here in a second. But so they're, oh yeah, I had Daniel Coyle. And I said, yeah, we know Daniel. We're, we're friends with Daniel. And I said, oh really? Like I would love to talk to him sometime if, you know, whatever, an introduction through email or whatnot. And so they actually did. And um, I was able to get on a phone call with, with Daniel Coyle about 40, 45 minutes to an hour and he, he told me that his parents loved to go to the old Vic Braden Tennis College in Cota de Casa, California. So he had fond memories of them going, and he said they always had a great time, great experience there. But it was kind of a treat for me to be able to talk to him on the phone. We talked a lot about education and the KIPP schools. And yeah, he has a, he has a, he has a website. Um, has another book, uh, the the Cultural Code. Yeah, great book. Also, the Little Book of Talent. The Little Book of Talent. Uh, tennis parents get that for your your children. Yeah son or daughter, and have them put it in their shoulder bag. It's 52 tips, and they should just read it. You know, or, you know water break, read one a day. Yeah. We need to get back to that. Our kids, uh, you know, I just see the shoulder bags open, and I see those books every day. But we did it where uh, we're doing this for a long time where, hey, get your book out, read read one of the clips. And they're just short, one, one or two short paragraphs. Yeah. But uh, from with Mylan, you know, he covers that. It's practice, 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 deep intent purposeful, purposeful practice yeah um, so myelin is produced through repetition it, it, it just it, it's a chemical the brain produces and codes neural pathways for all motor programming you know all motor programs executed more speed and more smoothness it's basically an electrical current for each and every skill yeah myelin's like basically like a tape that would go around the electrical wire just yeah, to make it secure and fast and now you hear people say you got great internet, get fast internet. Yeah. You know, you know, more myelin, more bandwidth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tiger Woods. Don't talk so much about the great Tiger anymore, but um, forgive and forget. But age two, myelin farmer. The guy just had so much myelin. <laughs> you know, piano chess, no matter what the discipline is, no substitute for a good beginning, no substitute uh, for um, an early start. You know, many kids, they have a late start and a bad start. And I just tell them up front, you know, they have an 11-year-old boy here from California. He's improving so fast. Um, but you know, um, with uh, he's almost 12. Natalia's daughter is almost 9. I go, hey, you know, there's three years between you. Yeah. And she started doing this when she was four. Yeah. And I said, you've just got to be hungry. You've got to put the reps in. And it, it's tough. I was like, yeah, you got to have a little bit of fun, but... Um, play one game of ping pong. Don't play, you know, one hour of ping pong. Yeah. Let's play one game and let's go. Got a little catching up to do. Yeah. Um, 
but again, the brain must be switched on. So a lot of times kids, uh, cruise control, they're out there physically, but they're not out there mentally. Um, with, and that this has become where you hear coaches say it all the time. That's how powerful Daniel Coyle's book is, has been deep, intent, purposeful practice. Uh, Rus- Russians understand deliberate practice and constant criticism. That's so important. Constant criticism. You know, don't kill a kid with kindness. Let him know how to get better. Yeah, you're basically looking. You're like you always say. You know, strive on criticism. You want to know how to get better. What you need to do, whether it's through video or or a coach helping you out. You know, coming back to ice hockey. Um, my mother used to have this painting of. Uh, it was a hockey bench with a coach. You know, standing behind his players and yelling. And it was just all you could see is just the helmets because it was really tiny little players. Couldn't even see over the boards. (laughs) And I can remember I was living in Canada and my two boys playing ice hockey. And um, and there's there's no no such thing as virgin ears. The kids are five, six years old. The referees, the the coach is just swearing at the referees. (laughs) Uh, But... Yuri Sharapova, I had a chance to be around him so many times. Intense, always yelling. I think this is something parents need to always hear. And Maria Sharapova, his daughter, could just deadpan it. Where, um, you know, she, and she could do that in interviews. Just boom, make a comment. And like, okay, let's move on. That was a stupid question. Yeah. But she said, I understood a long time ago that my father is for me, not against me. Right. Kids need to understand. The parents turn up the volume. Yeah. And become intense. Um, what happens is a child will disappoint their parents. There's, you know, the opposite of expectations is disappointments. So Vic Brain used to say this as a psychologist is anger covers hurt. Mm. You know, the, but there's a reason the parents are angry. Mm. And, you know, the, the word danger is, you know, there's just one letter. Just put D in front of anger and you got danger. But um, with... Um, here's another uh, quote from uh, Larissa. We'll go back to, through Larissa through Natalia. If you start without technique, it is a mistake, a big, big mistake. Actually, I um, left out the word big one time. It is a big mistake, a big, big mistake. Yeah. Um, the Russians all, in all the Soviet sports, they started with gymnastics. Uh, it was a... Theory, a uh, concept that all Russians should become the master of two sports, not just one. Mm. I've, again, having gone back, and I've only been to Moscow, but I've been back several times since 87, and, and what a difference. But it's very common to go to a tennis, indoor tennis facility, and one court is all, it's just a gym. Yeah. And, you know, they're way ahead, way ahead of us as far as developing athletes. This is you know, like my, one of my sons went to a Jesuit school where they had very good sports teams. But unfortunately, the Jesuit school had a really nice campus, but they didn't have their own tennis courts. And where I ran my tennis school was just, you know, really just a stone's throw away. And um, but, but that meant my son and all the others that played high school tennis, they weren't around the football players. They weren't around the lacrosse players. They weren't around the other athletes. Mm. And that's one thing, I, more so in Europe, definitely in my, my time in Russia is that when you are um, at a tennis facility, you're going to see soccer fields and see tracks and, yeah. and see, see athletes. Yeah. Same in Germany. You see some of that. No, I mean, the gymnastics, I would definitely 
I had kids or when we have kids, want to get them involved in gymnastics, get the gross motor skills going, body control. Courage. Courage. Yeah, get, yeah. Rid, get rid of the fear. You know, that's one great thing about a swimming pool, trampoline, is where do you where do you learn body awareness and you know what you know you see uh, players athletes I should say um, he's a, a Canadian that we uh, trained to play and teach many years ago he's a lawyer now in Canada Danny Cooper and he was mm-hmm. part of I don't know Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records not Guinness is that how you say it Guinness yeah. is that um, you do a backflip all these they, they do it you know they're hanging like twenty of them holding hands and they flip over and. But a lot of the times when people do tricks like that, they land in water. So it's like a kid. Now you don't, with all the liability issues, you don't see kids just fooling around on a diving board because there's no more diving boards. Yeah. Yeah, now they have those big foam pits. They have those huge centers where they're like... Yeah, and no, that, that, yeah. Um, I don't know no, enough about it, but the Ninja Turtles, uh, I mean, it's a, I think it's becoming like an e-sport. It's, it's, it's growing. Yeah. Uh, rock climbing, so yeah. But just the norm, though, is that you know kids are doing less and less, not more and more with their body. Yeah. Braden used to say this about young kids. He goes, and this was back, you know, Vic's obviously passed away, so he's twenty five years older than I was. That Vic would say, "Have you ever hung around with a little kid?" Years ago in the U.S., every it seemed like everybody who had a garage, you know, obviously if you. Parents lived in an apartment, but your parents had a garage, you had a red wagon. And one of the reasons was car, people, their families only had one car. You would go to the grocery store and the parents would not only to have the kids play with, but they would pull their groceries back to their house. Yeah, yeah. But Vic, you say, you ever go around the corner of the kids, they get in that red wagon and they're falling off of it and they roll on the sidewalk, they bounce right back up. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's true that today with so much paranoia about so many things going wrong and so many um, outlets for, for news used to be uh, no TV and then TV with three stations. Yeah. Now that there's 900 TV outlets, so kids are overprotected. And I understand why parents will overprotect, but overprotected and underprepared. Yeah. With uh, street smarts, um, it's, you know, you have to be around the streets a little bit to have street smarts. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, so many test kids, they've, they've never ridden a bus. Yeah. Never ridden a bus. I, it's um, funny you bring that up. My brother went to music school. He's a bass player in Hollywood. And for a while, we were living in Orange County, but I was going to train practice uh, actually at UCLA. And so I would go with my brother to Hollywood. You know, I was like 15 years old, 14, 15, I think. And, uh, he, you know, so he would go to music school and then I would have to take a bus from Hollywood over to Westwood. And the bus was on Sunset Boulevard, basically, in L.A. And some of you have probably been to L.A., Sunset area. There's, there's some interesting characters that are on a local local bus there, the blue bus, you know, 50 cents. But I'll never forget those experiences on the bus where it was, you know, being street smart keeping your eyes open and then experiencing some, some different characters there in Hollywood as a kid. It was kind of fun. I'll never forget it. But yeah, I love that experience that I got when I was young just to ride the bus in LA, you know? Oh, I grew up where my parents never had to look for the car keys, but because keys were always in the car <laughs> and they didn't have a key to their house. Yeah, that's but I can remember going to Toronto uh, by bus and having to go through Buffalo and 
just, you know, like a kid who's never been in New York City, just walking around yeah. looking. <laughs> yep. You know, talk about um, toughness. You've trained a young guy, um, pronunciations of names. It's not like Jeff Jones. Artyom Pogaimi from, uh, he's on our website, Tennis Intelligence Applied. Yeah. Free course, 25 hours of, of tennis content. So he's from Moldova, is one of the poorest countries. His parents were both big time athletes, one in uh, rhythmic gymnastics and the other in the broad jump. And mm. genetics. So myelin's important, but genetics. Uh, yeah. Tennis parents. Helps you, too. Tennis parents usually don't talk about the gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> this is my contribution. Yeah. With, uh, but Artyom told me this, and I took him up and I started asking the tennis kids how to make spaghetti. You know, spaghetti doesn't cost very much, but it, I was amazed at how many kids didn't know you have to boil water. <laughs> uh, I've had kids who didn't know. I had kids, who, I had kids who didn't know how to boil an egg. Yeah. No, they just don't know. It's just like, you know, it's just put right in front of me. They don't have any kitchen duties. Yeah. Nowadays it's, uh, you just pull out your phone and you go, okay, Uber Eats. You just bring me a little Chipotle. Uh, back to Soviet sports again, through my oldest brother, um, it was a elimination mm. system, elimination of spots and opportunities. The Soviet system was negative in the sense it didn't allow for a second chance. It didn't allow for late maturity. Mm. Now the fa- the family, the, the further someone would go in sports, they would actually get some money, some Russian rubles. But so there was a cutoff. And can you imagine if kids knew that the, you know, the sports, your, your position, you know, you're going to go from um, a group of 20 to a group of 10 and who, who's going to make it. It's one yeah. of the toughest things in tennis. And I don't think that tennis parents know that. Um, and I don't know for what reason in high school they have these no-cut policies. Like everybody makes it. We don't cut anyone. It's like, well, you've only got four courts and you got 40 kids out. And when it comes down to they don't do that in basketball. Of course, yeah. in basketball, they have a freshman team, a JV team, a varsity team. And I think, you know, certainly I understand the upbeat. Okay, let's have everyone be part of the team. Let's make everyone feel good. But if they were told that, you know, you still, you got to start practicing. You know, you got to start practicing in elementary school mm-hmm. to be able to make a team in high school. Um, if you were going to coach a high school team of, let's say, you got 30 people coming out, how would you do it? Well, I think a dream job would be to work at a small school. Um, obviously, it'd be nice if it was a private school. Uh, that that can mean too much money. But if you could start, if you're going to be part of a high school program, you're going to start working with elementary age kids. I mean, early. Um, but you, you, know, would, I, I was, you would cut? Well, let, let me finish with, uh, I would, but in a different way. When it comes down to cut the grade, because what's going to happen, the reality, you're going to go to college, you're going to go for a team and, you know, you, you're going to get cut. You're going to say, you know, come back next year. And there really is no next year because the players who make the team keep practicing. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a Disney picture if someone goes and does it on their own and they come back the next year and they make the team. You know, like a Michael Jordan famous story, he was cut from his basketball team. Yeah. But the varsity team, but the, the coach wanted him to get more playing time as a sophomore playing JV basketball. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. The story is the high school coach was in his driveway every night teach him how to play because he knew how great he was. Yeah. But, you know, have kids start with multiple sports and uh, 
you know, so, okay, some sports are very expensive. You could even say some sports like football are very dangerous. I mean, I go as far as saying, I think every little boy in America should play tackle football with pads. Yeah. Uh, my oldest brother, um, Matt, my oldest brother, Mike, my one of my older brothers, Matt. So I'm in the, you play, I guess, in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So I'm in the sixth grade. You go to, you got to weigh 80 pounds to get a uniform. I don't get a uniform. You have to be weighed between 80 and 120 pounds. Mm. And, you know, I'm eating bananas and trying to bulk up so I could stand at the scale and weigh 81 pounds. I'm serious. <laughs> and with, uh, he never got to play because he was in the sixth grade. He made, made, made he weighed more than 120 pounds. <laughs> so um, when it comes down to, okay, we're going to teach running mechanics. We're going to teach, uh, everyone should be able to play softball, baseball. We're going to play mm-hmm. soccer. We're going to play baseball. Those are not expensive sports. Yeah. And, you know, just to start, and you mentioned with gymnastics. Yep. Uh, so, but then to say, all right, where, where are you going to be as a, as, as a sixth grader? You know, now when, is, when should someone specialize? Um, I mentioned uh, in a podcast, Sam Volo, great football coach in the small town. They used to say that Sam Volo knew who his quarterback was going to be when he was in the fifth or sixth grade. Mm. Um, of course, that's it's, it's a small town, but um, when... You know, you read about like uh, this book, Amazing Racers, yeah, cross-country teams. This is what you do all summer long. And you can't just sign up. I, I've had so many people call and go, our child is going out for high school tennis. Yeah, they, I've gotten that so many times. Could they come by for a lesson? Yeah. Here's one that's really sad, too, is that. Winter tryouts. Uh, on two weeks. Our child is advancing <laughs> from red ball to orange ball. Could you give them a tennis lesson? Yeah. I, you better. You should be swinging at the ball the same way, whether it's red or orange. Yeah. You need the same mechanics. A few more things. Um, In fact, you need better mechanics. Because yeah. Sometimes the way they're swinging with those red and orange balls, that ball ain't going in the court with a real ball. Well, I tell people, I said, "Well, this is great. Why don't we just play with a balloon? Then no one's gonna, <laughs> no one's gonna miss." The, the joke um, in the U.S. If if a kid is, you know, I tell a Russian kid, I say, you. You better start working hard. They send you to Siberia. Yeah. Uh, very cold in Siberia. There's a cartoon where the the Russian hockey team, the big red machine that was upset by a group of college kids, 1980, the Miracle on Ice. Yeah. The cartoon was, you know, you just see these guys sawing a log in the snow falling. And uh, if we knew we were, were going to be sent to Siberia, we would have won that one game. <laughs> yeah. We won 99 out of 100, yeah, and exactly. now we're in Siberia. With I love that's one of my favorite movies, Miracle. You know, the thing about that is they, Brooks. what they did is they um, used uh, actors who were hockey players. So yeah. they, they didn't use actors and try to pretend they were hockey players. Yeah. In the movie Wimbledon, I would have loved to have been the technical <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, advisor. They used Pat Cash. And people say, I just remember racket back and move your feet, move your feet. And, but they didn't use a tennis ball. You could have really shown actors how to move the racket. Yeah. They could look fantastic. They did like CG. What's that mean? Like uh, the graphic special effects. Yeah, where they put the ball in afterwards. Yep. But this is a line for the former Soviet system. Uh, someone who I know worked uh, in a limited capacity with Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs. He never suffered a fool twice. And after school, junior development programs, it's over and over and over again. It's the tennis teachers, it's 
glorified babysitting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you're, you're going to lose your opportunity, kid. You're out here and you don't do what we tell you to do. It's not to be authoritative, but you're here to get better. Yeah. Um, I know that people take swim lessons seriously because it's a life-saving skill. Yeah, exactly. You know, I look at some young kids play tennis, and I have no problem telling the parents if they were playing that way, if that's how they swam, there's a chance they could drown. Yeah, that's how they play tennis. Well, I've heard you say oftentimes too. It's like, you know, it's like they're bleeding. You know, they're just yeah, exactly they're bleeding, and it's like, hey, got to save your life. That's it. Nice shot. That's it. Nice shot. And it's like, are you kidding me? No. I tell a lot of parents, they ask, what do you think? Well, the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming right at you. Your kid, they can play a little patty cake tennis off that serve, but let's go back to the drawing board. Dementieva, Elena Dementieva, she was part of the Spartak group. This elimination process, group of 25. Yeah. Seven of the 25 played on the tour. Four were in the top 10. Rat Safin, Daenerys Safin, Elena, and Anna Kornikova. With that, um, you know, different backgrounds where Anna Kova ended up at Balateri's, you know, the Safins ended up in Spain, but where did they start? But the yeah. thing is, and we'll go through that, the, they took the mentality with them. Safin and Safina. Safina. The, yeah. Safina, yeah. It's amazing, though, both number one. Yeah, actually, they surpassed uh, Cliff and Nancy Ritchie from San Angelo, Texas. Um, they had top 10, you know, they were top 10 players in the world. The misunderstanding how the pros practice as pros and how the, how they practice when they were kids, like Jimmy Connors used to just do really one intense hour. Yeah. People, oh, that's how I'm going to practice. Yeah. They didn't realize he hit the backboard all day long and all the hours he put in as a kid. I think Martin Hingis was the same thing as, oh, she's number one in the world and she's going to go ride horses. But she yeah. hits so many balls. Built the Milan when they're young. Milan Farmer. I think kids see that too. For example, the Indian Wells tournament where you can really be there close to the practice facility, be almost literally on the court. They just kind of see the players, you know, and doing an easy one-hour practice. That's not really how they're practicing outside of tournaments. Of course, in the beginning of the tournament, it's tougher to get practice courts, but not if you want to stay hit under the lights. Yeah. Unfortunately, Bob Brett, age 67, the Australian who was mentored by Harry Hopman, mm. he recently passed away. But I one time was at Indian Wells. Um, I was meeting with Austin Krychek and um, Raven Klassen. One player trying to help out the other player as far as, you know, what to do off the court and pro tennis and such. Uh, when to possibly specialize in doubles. So it's a pretty good place to hang out. So we're having lunch, we're having dinner, but... Bob Brett was on the same court with uh, Sillage, mm-hmm. Aaron Sillage. I mean, all day. Yeah. He just didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, for parents who want to find out more about Milan, tennis coaches, um, Andres Eriksson made a lifelong study, basically, Swedish professor, but he, he works out of Florida State. Just, just Google um, Dr. Andres Eriksson. He's got a book. It's uh, over 900 pages on. Yeah. On Milan, so but he he's one who's you know certainly the scientist to talk to versus Daniel Coyle is someone who's just uh, very curious and touched upon so many different sports and yeah. and he deli- he he and needs to be patted on the back because he delivered the message. Uh, but we've we've known that for years, but it's not muscle memory, it's brain memory, yeah. repetition. Yeah. With uh, we talked about genetics. Uh, Murat Safin, when he came on the tour, 
about the same time Andy Roddick and uh, Roger Federer did. And he was the one who's considered the specimen. Now, Natalia would be able to tell us that his mother was part of Spartak. Um, Saffin being crazy, Roger Federer said, you never know which Saffin's going to show up. Uh, Vlander. Uh, I was going to say just quickly, I think that their mother was um, Dementieva's coach, right? First coach, I believe. You'd have to ask uh, Natalia. Yeah, we'll ask her. Um, with, um, I'm not sure. I could say, yes, I think so. Yeah. But she'll know. Um, Vlander, the great Swedish player, Mats Vlander, he coached Safin. He said the best business deal he ever made was every time Safin broke a racket, he had to give him $100. <laughs> yeah. Safin, he, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I think that, you know, even the wild man, he asked Jimmy Connors to uh, speak on his behalf when he was inducted. You know, Jimmy was his own man as well. But when Safin got there and he saw all the history, people should look up and listen to what he said during his uh, induction speech that, you know, he really apologized for, and he did not take advantage of his awesome, awesome talent. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've found that, you know, you're not supposed to categorize or put people in a box, but the Russian women have been much harder working, not, not, uh, not too many crazy Russian women versus uh, Russian men. Mm. Again, being in Moscow, um, the Russian girl comes to the courts, they get there an hour early, they go to the corner and they just shadow swing four ends of backhands, four ends of backhands, they just keep moving like a, like a real boxer. Mm. It's interesting, and you know, you could question how the serve was taught way back when uh, at Spartak, because there's players who came out Dementieva, Kornikova, serve problems. Yeah, from the beginning. But also, too, Americans need to realize it's changed dramatically. Is you know, teaching people how to throw a ball. Yeah. Now it's fair for women, but when I was a kid, if a girl played a lot of sports, she was considered tomboy. Right. It was so unfair for girls before before Title IX. And tennis uh, had its part in that for sure. The Billie Jean King playing Bobby Riggs, the Battle of Sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel Coyle on money. Um, you can't just throw money at a problem. And I know as an American, you know, the French beat up the French Federation, the Germans, the German Tennis Federation. Right. But when he wrote his book um, in 2007, the, to- the total budget for the Russians was uh, less than $400,000. So say it was like $350,000. Mm-hmm. Sorry to say this, but there's some people with the USTA. It's public domain. Yeah, You can look it up. That There's people, there's at least a half dozen people. Now it's it's changed with the pandemic. A lot of people lost their jobs, but um, that there's at least a half dozen employees that make that much per year. And I think if you sat down and asked them what, the, what they do, producers and parasites is what do you do? I mean, what do you do for that kind of money? What would you say you do here? Yeah. Um, with, you know, some of the differences going back from 1987, uh, here's something I would recommend. Uh, the late Robin Williams, he had the lead role in a movie called Moscow and Hudson based on a true story. I saw the, the Moscow circus in New York and in, um, Moscow, our street entrepreneurs took us to that. <laughs> but 
in New York, my brother knew Russian hockey drills. He had a chance to be the assistant coach in New York Rangers. But it's all true. I was there. It was, uh, the, the Russians thought that these Italian cars, Fiat's, were made in Russia. And there's only two kinds. It was in the big black ones, they all were government cars with KGB, all GB. black. Yeah. Um, but you had to have your name pulled out of a lottery and you had to wait you know, it's, it's, it's like, let's say seven, eight years before you could forget a cup, get a car. Hmm. Now, everybody over there wants a car. In traffic in Moscow, there's five big circles. And they they built the roads that way because they, they didn't ever want to be invaded. So the infrastructure is now too too swift. <laughs> and you could be over there. Remember Jeff Lewis went with me one time and it's beautiful cars. There's a Lamborghini and it's they're going backwards on the sidewalk <laughs> uh, because... And they're beautiful underground. But a lot of times, you know, people are suppressed. Like, we couldn't have a car for the longest time. And now, in a big city, a lot of people, a lot of really wealthy New Yorkers, they go through their whole life and they don't even own a car. Yeah. Here's yeah. something with Russians. We've talked to Natalia about, and maybe it's changed, but back in the day, we, you weren't issued a birth certificate. So you <laughs> want to get a passport. But back in the day, no one was leaving the country. So you yeah. didn't need a passport. Yeah. When you finally get a good passport, they say, when's your birthday? And you could make your birthday up. Oh, I'm going to be, yeah. And, you know, there's some inside scoop that, you know, some players, they were, they were not the age that the public yeah. thought they were. Yeah. Now, I had 12 and under tournament, like, hi, my name. <laughs> They're shaving. Yeah. With, I, I had a rush, I had three people work for me. Uh, at the time, I, I had a husband and wife. They were both bodybuilding champions and they were our fitness training team and mm -hmm. coaches, you know, everyone. And they were, they are beginners. Yeah. They are beginners. They're 17. They're beginners. <laughs> when it comes to fitness, they're beginners. <laughs> I told these two Russian trainers, I said, come up with one word that will define what you do. And, you know, at first I said, ah, give me one word. It's going to define what you do. And they said, yeah. you know, the language barrier, they said, all right, just give us till tomorrow. And they came back with the greatest word. Obedience. Yeah, I love that. And I use that to this day. Obey the laws of physics, but obey your own goals. You're the one who wrote down you want to be a great player. Yeah. It's not being obedient to the coach. Yeah, um, discipline. So at a young kid, so one the, the Russian trainer, he had a friend very successful in, in the Tampa area. And they were sponsoring this young tennis player. I won't give his last name, but Nikita. So Nikita comes over, he's 14, and he's playing the 12s. Uh, this guy's going to win the Eddie Hurry. He's going to win the Orange Bowl with his eyes closed. And he was a little bit older than my my two sons. Um, I know Rob Krychik, who we interviewed, he, he would remember Nikita. Is, um, so they took him down to Balateri's. They just brought him to my place to warm up, my tennis school. And so but they brought him back. So he ended up spending like six months with us. Mm. And so... Remember my former wife at the time, she, it's, it's his birthday. She gets cupcakes for everyone, birth, birthday cake, and having a little celebration. So if a kid turns 12 and you ask him how old he is, he's, he might forget, well, today's my birthday, now I'm 12. He'll say, I'm 11. But the kid's not going to say, I'm 13, and then get an elbow and say, uh, I'm 11, I'm 12, I'm 11, I'm 12. So they figured out, we figured out, we talked to him about it, we figured out, that he was cheating and they, they, they sent him home. So he never, he never played. Um, so he was actually 13, not. 12. Yes. 
Yes, but even sometimes the birthday is not the birthday. Yeah. Um, and then that's not just Russia. I remember teaching tennis next to uh, Mario Martinez, who from Bolivia, he, he told me that he played the Orange Bowl when he was um, 20 years old. So cheating <laughs> takes place, and I'm, yeah. we're not just picking, <laughs> picking on the Russians. But that's something that... Um, I hope that was 18 and under. Yeah, yeah, right. Didn't play the 12s at age 20. He's 14. With, playing in the 14s when he's 20. But Nick Baltieri, no one has met more people who want to be great players than Nick Baltieri. You know, they've taken on big numbers, especially in the summer. And mm-hmm. um, there, there was a movie back, I think it was in the 70s, The Russians Are Coming. So that was Nick's line. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, did they start coming. With um, female coaches. You just talked to Natalia about this. Yeah. My mother used to say this all the time. It's too bad in elementary school that there's not a better balance between male and female teachers. Mm. Now, um, it wouldn't be straight across the board, but a lot of moms, it's just, you know, it's just natural. They baby their babies. Mm. And um, so, you know, kids go for go years and years before, you know, they're around their mother all the time, especially, you know, now there's a lot of moms, obviously, that work outside the house. But years ago, um, you know, kids would just be with their mom when they were really young. And then they're going to elementary school and um, the macho male ego, the influence. So it, for, yeah. why would she say that? Just better balance. But in Russia, um, female teachers, now I say young the uh, I had nuns when I was really young. Hit you in with a stick. Hit you with a stick, <laughs> and the parents are in the back going harder, harder. <laughs> it's like you know a lot of South Africans who when they went to school. They'd get paddled and they go home. They get paddled for getting paddled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Double whammy. Double dose. With, um, but in Soviet the Soviet Union, I should say in Russia, there's more female coaches in tennis than there are male coaches to this day. And in being over there, I'm just was always amazed how these women would come on out, and they're just they're talking to five and six year olds like they're athletes. Yeah, you know, it's like Marines. Like, how are you today? Isn't yeah. that sweet? <laughs> yeah. Let me give you a hug. Yeah. Uh, no, there's a commercial that USCA uses, and it's a cute little girl comes out. It's really a pet peeve because I mention quite often and. You know, it's during the U.S. Open, they're showing all these commercials. And yeah. She tosses the ball up, she puts the racket up here in the pizza position, yeah. and the ball hits her on the head. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's not funny. Come that's on. that's not yeah. funny. Like, isn't that cute? Yeah. Uh, so. No, it's not. Well, tennis was an Olympic sport for a long time. And because it was an Olympic sport, it wasn't a priority. It wasn't prestigious in Russia. And just like in this country, it wasn't fair for women. They got lesser jobs. You know, they uh, end up coaching tennis. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very, very common to go to a, a tennis facility and see these young kids, and they, 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 they hit the ground running. It's like, come on, let's go. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. That's the way it should be. Um, with That still exists, but in tennis, um, not so much, unfortunately. Yeah. With, um, here's a story with, with Tatiana. We'll come back to Natalia for her last, last name. I spent a lot of time with this coach from Sochi, same age as I am. She, everybody in Russia, Russia knows her. 
in the um, years gone by at the Eddie Hur, everybody played mixed. And basically, you got your partner. They just pick names out of the hat. Mm. So um, one of our students, an American girl, who she had been at Voluntaries. I had coached her at this time. So how I was introduced to this girl, Liberty Secchi, she went on. She played at Vanderbilt. And um, but she had been Voluntaries for five years. And at the time, you know, big buddy, same age as Sharapova. I remember she went to Sharapova's birthday party and brought me back a can of pink tennis balls that said Sharapova on each tennis ball. <laughs> it was a party it was in New York City. And um, so working with this Russian player, and Tatiana, the coach, tells the father through a translator that they need to come and see me and have a video made. And they did. And so I filmed the girl and I said, well, play the Eddie. I told the dad, you know, once the Orange Bowl is over, because it's Eddie here first, Orange Bowl second. Mm-hmm. I said, just then come back and, you know, watch the film. And I can remember she did really well, especially in doubles. She won a lot of national titles. But we had, you know, for her, we took a piece of cardboard and taped it to her arm, you know, put a dime on the base knuckle of her index finger to the point where you could tell on her, you'd look at her palm and it was heads. (laughs) It wasn't tails. And so she's like this and just... She just rebuilt her game. Mm. Um, you know, again, there's so many positives about Boletaries. But at that time, she, you know, so this girl, Liberty Stuckey, her father and mother, they didn't realize that Sharapova once a month incognito and in secrecy was going out and working with Landstorp. Right. Because Yuri really loved the way Sampras played. And so the uh, typically people would think, okay, you need to go work with a technician first like a pre-academy, and then go to an academy. Um, I think people say the other way around is get a kid really hungry and competitive and fighting for points where they really love tennis. Okay, now, even though you have several bad years of tennis development from a technical standpoint, but now that you just love the sport and you know you want to win, you know this is your thing, now we'll we'll teach you how to hit it. But it, it, it typically makes sense to, okay, let's get it done right in the beginning. So, um. When I first made um, videos for Tatiana's players, it was amazing. They were there to play the Eddie here in the Orange Bowl. So I make videos for them. And the tennis was a small place. So one Russian contact sends another group of Russians. And back in the day, it'd be very, it was very common for, you know, there's, you know, it's a, it's a Tatiana and a coach and um, say six players, you know, four that are in the tournament and two that are not, but they're just, and they're really wealthy and they're the ones that are really funding the whole trip (laughs) with, um, but so anyway, they skip the orange bowl, make the video. And it's just, you know, there's a translator and they're talking to each other. They say no orange bowl. Yeah. We're not going to orange bowl. (laughs) Can we just stay here and work on technique? Mm. And I said, sure. And and I was working at a, a facility in Tampa where, I said, yeah, you can use this court. We got a ball machine. There's a picnic table. Got it set up. Use this court. And, I mean, they just went out and they bought gallons of milk and white bread and bologna. And they didn't. I mean, they, they, did, all day. they stayed there all day. Yeah. You know, we were there for our two practices. We had to go do different things. But they were there all day. Yeah. And that that's. Um, that's the mentality. You know, actually, uh, some of you mentioned uh, last week is. An American coach who had a lot to do with it over the years. Mark Hamlin showed up and said, Steve, 
you love these people. You love their work ethic. You should defect. You should defect. <laughs> you should leave America and go to Russia. Yeah. Um, I worked with Tatiana's nephew. He spent a great deal of time with us. He was ranked uh, one in the early age groups. And what happened with uh, Tatiana, she coached uh, Gefeldikov, who became number one in the world. Mm-hmm. Actually, to digress, one of our students, somebody worked with Orlean Stanoitsche from Bulgaria. We have this on our course, uh, Tennis Intelligence Applied. Yeah. He had been taken to, it was actually volunteers, but he, and they told me he needed more match play. Then he came to, came to us and said, he needs to go back <laughs> to basics. Yeah. And he did, and um, he went five sets on Arthur Ashe with Kefelnikov. Right. So Kefelnikov became number one. Yeah, so anyway, go just for the listeners, if you were to go um, to Tennis Intelligence Applied and, and watch the late bloomer, it's one of the first videos that's on there. Tennis Intelligence Applied. Two types of pro players: teenage sensation, late bloomers, and every five years, there's one man, one woman who's a teenage sensation. There's yeah. not too too many. Yeah. Um, college uh, tennis players, we tell parents, there's two types of college tennis players, projects and blue chips. Now, certainly some of the schools, you could be a five-star. I mean, three stars, four stars, it's going to be very difficult even to play at a Division three school. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, her, her nephew, um, Roman, he ended up playing college tennis states, but he... Kefelnikov set this up. He was only 14, and he went to Germany to try to play pro tennis. And it's really interesting that he's a Russian living in Germany, and that's where he learned to speak English. Mm-hmm. English, is yeah. the, English is the number one tennis language. Really, around international tournaments, it's a pretty safe bet to say, you know, Russia, or Russian, you know, Russian. And it's not just from Russia, but the Russian language. Mm-hmm. That's really the number two tennis language. Um, our great base course was filmed in Moscow. That's um, kind of an interesting point. Yeah. Young boy demonstrated, you met Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a gr- great support from his family. Coaches tennis now in Moscow, but he was a fighter. He was so fast, he could run from Moscow to Miami. No, uh, there's not that big a bridge. He, he could run uh, <laughs> from one end of the USSR to the other. Uh, had strokes, but as a competitor, he just, he just like a lot of young kids, he just didn't put the wires together. You can want to win too badly. You know, it's actually a good goal is to have no goal. And, and if you really understand, you know, Bill Tilden, tennis players are born out of defeat. Uh, ended up playing a little bit of college tennis, right, for Indiana? Or? He started to. He went to Indiana. Uh, Jeremy Wurtzman, who's he's also on our course, great base. Yeah, we have we have actually film of people from the 1980s in our library. But Wurtzman, uh, we'll have to you know have him be on our program eventually. Yeah. Get guests going. Um, the uh, but yeah, he he was he's at the University of Indiana. Mark went there, but he he wasn't he. He didn't stick it. He didn't yeah. go very. He didn't go very long. Um, two types of Russians. I mentioned this: rich and poor. Say it again. Um, you get Russians to laugh when you hear him say say that. Is but the rich Russians are still hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you ask why is that? Um, that's why it'll be great to talk to Natalia. Yeah. Um, you know her coaching style. I mean, 
she's got one pitch. Yeah, yeah. She has <laughs> fastball. Uh, it's just one volume. <laughs> uh, let me say this about Russians. Um, and this is not just Russians, but cheating is created from pressure. A kid cheats, a lot of times it's from parental pressure. Mm. And again, it's not to point fingers. You can't say all Russians cheat or all, you know, every kid who cheats, it's a parent's fault. But there's so much pressure put on winning. Now, U.S. academies, many times a lot of kids will cheat because what they do is they drill in the morning and play matches in the afternoon. And there's, you know, and I, again, I love so many things about Balteri. He's toughest playground in tennis, but it, there's no such thing as a practice match. You play the match to win. Mm. And, you know, sometimes, okay, you're making a, a grip change. I mean, you're, you're making a swing change. Yeah. It's instruction, destruction. That's why it's tough to do. I mean, if you go to an academy, it typically is for those competitive situations and drilling. So it's right. So if you win your match in the afternoon, then the next morning you get to move up a group. And the kids are so pumped to move up a group. Right. Um, probably one of the toughest matches. I'm sorry? Tough to make a grip change in those kind of circumstances. Yeah. One, one of the most difficult matches is, um, and unfortunately, I don't think they're played as often anymore, is a challenge match. You know, two players are playing a match. And, you know, one guy's going to play in the lineup at number six. Yeah, yeah. Those, and then when there's cheating. So I, what I would do in that situation is I would put a team player, a teammate, at the net post. And if there's a conflict, you have an arbitrator, you overrule. Yeah. And that's the same thing with, uh, in some countries, you know, they, a young kid has to, you know, they have to sit on the match to call it. Mm. Um, but wherever there's corruption too, you know, I think about it, if you have a, like a Russian kid where there's a lot of corruption in Japan, they say, oh, I said, get a Russian and a Japanese kid playing. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> but a lot of Russians in Canada, a young girl from Canada spent a lot of months with us. And she did really well, came many, many times. One time she was with us for half a year. So she got to the um, quarterfinals of one, semifinal of the other. So the Eddie here, Orange Bowl. And I remember just telling the people with Tennis Canada, do not give her wild cards. Don't put her in, you know, the $10,000 events. She can run, she can fight, she can hit a backhand. Yeah. But so anyway, um, I'm at a tournament. This is where I became a star once. <laughs> is... I generally try to stay the furthest away. That's what parents should do. If you want to coach parents, you need to be the furthest parent from the fence. Right. And conscientious neglect. You don't need to be a fan. You don't need to be, you know, you know the person driving the bus, the leading, leading the entourage, carry, mm -hmm. carrying the bag. Uh, you know, again, a lot of parents, they just conscientious neglect. Um, so I'm talking to this player from Canada. Loud, loudly, and then the umpire says to me, "There was just by that time, it, it was not a warning; it was a firm command, mm -hmm. sir. If you talk to your player, I think actually think about it. He might have said if you talk to your daughter. So he was being nice to me because it would be my granddaughter, not my daughter. <laughs> he said if you talk to your player one more time, she's going to be penalized, and you're going to be removed from the facility. And there's." You know, at that, that part of the tournament, there's quite a few people watching. And I said, sir, I told her if she cheats one more time, I'm going to grab her by the ponytail and pull her off the court. 
You said it loud enough for every all the people watching to hear, right? Everybody heard it. Yeah. And she ended up losing. Remember Andy Brandy, who I've had a lot to do with over the years. He came up and he said, uh, is this your player? And I said, yes, but keep it a secret. Uh, when it comes down to, um, yeah, she could run, she could fight. She had, still had holes in her game. And, um, but, you know, a lot of times the, the coach is, yes, she is in semifinal. Yes, but she has palm up on the serve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, she's running backwards and almost hitting the fence. Winning is not confusing. It's yeah, Japan. Totally is, confusing. Japan's type of place. You, know, you leave a briefcase on the street. You go back a week later. It's still going to be there. <laughs> I remember being in Japan. This one happened. Not to pick it on Russia. In Russia, um, this one happened in, uh, in in the United States either. But vending Maybe machine, Salt Lake City. Also, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, you Mormons. <laughs> Salt Lake City with um, clean living, the um, a vending machine where you can buy a bottle of whiskey and it's it's made out of glass. Yeah. They're going to break the vending machine and steal the whiskey. Yeah. Um, I, in 87, I can remember being in uh, Russia and we're at a park. And if you wanted to have a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, there was... You know, there was one glass that everybody used, and you'd put the glass back, and the Coca-Cola would come down, and everybody drink out of the same glass. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. With not um, happening these days. The um, in Russia, um, so again, coming back to that, the, the, it really should not be the pressure on winning. I do think that is part of the Russian formula. I've worked with so many Russians that. Um, you know, even though you hear technique is everything, there's just like everywhere, there's too many of them where it was just win at all costs. Mm. Um, running programs. I was amazed by this to be in, in Moscow and you just take your kid and you just go and you greet the coach and then they say, okay, run a few laps and they help you with your mechanics. But you can actually just take your kid to a running school, mm. show up and then you show up periodically You can come anytime you want. Mm -hmm. Um, American parents, and not just the U.S., but, you know, starting the gym, finishing the gym, uh, you don't show up without a pair of running shoes. Yeah. Um, yep, got to run. I worked at uh, just a few times uh, when the Roddicks owned it and then when the Roddicks also sold it. As a consultant, I worked at the former Roddick Tennis Academy, and they had one Russian player, and he said – that if a, if players are not, you know, one, two, three, if players are not throwing up vomiting at the end of the fitness training, that it wasn't a very good fitness session. I know Natalia, she had one kid throwing up today. So uh, here's a couple things. We have a Russian girl from Canada who just came in. Her name is Anastasia. And um, at one time, there was five Russian girls in the top 500 by the name of Anastasia. Mm-hmm. Tennis really jumped after 2001, where they only had one Russian in the top 30. By 2007, they had five. Mm -hmm. 2004 from Spartak. Mesquina and Dementieva were in the French final. Mesquina wins. Yeah. 2004, Sharapova wins. Talk, talk about markability. Um, Mesquina got $100,000 in endorsements and Sharapova $10 million one year. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Natalia will talk about uh, Kunetsov. She knows from her training. Yeah, she wins. Yeah, she wins the U.S. Open. 
Um, and before the press conference, I remember, and I shared this with people, she had to go clean her strokes. You got to hit afterwards. Jack Kramer, Victoria City, used to always do that. You know, you you go, you shower, you have something to eat, and you go back and you hit slowly. You, you work on your game. She said, I got to go clean my strokes. Yeah, because your strokes will break down. I mean, little yeah. kids, parents should know that every ball bounces up high and the kids are going to start going underneath more and more. Yeah. So if they're in a three-day competition, you go back, you got to rest anyway. You don't have to rest sitting on the couch playing your Game Boy or your computer games, but yeah. you, you need to get out and go through uh, techniques slowly. Kuznetsova does have compact swings too. No, she ended up playing some... Forehand and back inside. She was really young. She played some mix with Neratulova, and I was disappointed that Neratulova... Didn't get her to come in. Didn't get her to serve in volley. Uh, to, yeah. Today, you know, Sonia Cannon plays for the Fed Cup team. Mm. So she grows up in the U.S. To me, she's Russian. And just by the by mentality, and that's a compliment. Yeah, exactly. With um, Sasha Zverev. He, uh, you know, his brother, 10 years older, his parents, Russian. But... You know, he grew up in Hamburg, grew up in Germany, yeah. but he's Russian yeah. to me. And I think to the tennis world, yeah. uh, just has that mentality, and that's a compliment. Mm-hmm. Medvedev, um, his parents found a way for him to be in France, who France arguably has the best competitive system in the world, lots of clay courts. The UTR is based out, off the French system. Right. And so Medvedev grew up in France, a lot of significant formative years, Russian. Russian mentality. Yeah. Um, with um, Rhea Sharapova, you know, she grew up in the U.S. again, Russian mentality. Yeah. This kid, young Rublev, I was at um, with a tournament with my son, Connor, two of them actually, where Rublev was. And he must have been 17 or 18. And you could just see it in his eyes. Then he keep, keep asking, like, hey, you want to play set? Want to play set? Want to play? Yeah, he's always asking to hit, and a couple of the guys, um, Said, oh, that guy gives it a rest. He's going to burn out. No, 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 no. <laughs> really, it's not burnout. It's frustration factor. People don't burn out. Um, you know, Vic Braden used to say, well, people will burn people out. The game doesn't people out, burn people out. If you're getting better, yeah. if you're getting better, you don't burn out. What happens to so many people is they have a ceiling on how good they can be because they have a very poor technical base. So they work and work and you can get to the point where, yeah, I'm still practicing four or five hours a day and I'm not getting any better. Yeah. Um, with, um, here, I'll just end with one story, my favorite Russian story, but you know, maybe we set this up for next week with uh, Natalia about the Russian mentality. Mm-hmm. So Tatiana from Sochi, she's well known. Everybody knows her in Russia. She used to always, you know, dress very nicely. She was a tennis coach, but she would many times um, not dress like a tennis coach. But she was really respected. Her nephew, Roman, he coaches tennis now. So um, she was watching my son, Connor, and she said this for Connor. You know, he was playing somebody who was a lesser player, um, and he was just being lazy, which is very common. Now, we do a lot of things to avoid that. Say, okay, you get two levels of players. You know, you got a player who's a solid player. He's, you know, 14 years old, and he's playing somebody who's 16 years old. Say, all right, go play. First set's 40 love. Mm-hmm. Well, we can start at three all, play no ad. 
So you can make it, you know, shorter, but say, say for them, example, give them a lead. Yeah. So, um, the, your player A, I'm player B and, you know, so you're player A, you're better than I am. Of course. Yeah. So you, you serve, um, at love 40. I serve at 40 love. If I win that, then I get to jump up to trying to beat you with only a two point lead. If I win that, then I get to try to beat you with only one point lead. And then if, you know, we've had it where it keeps climbing, where someone actually turns it around, where now one person's spotting the other person. Yeah. Another way to do it is you only get a game if you win three points in a row. Mm -hmm. But so this is something to be, uh, this, is where you, this is where you might get some tight calls. This is where you could get a little cheating. A little yeah. cheating, but a few tight calls and say, all right, um, no telling if no telling what the, the punishment would be if you lost a set. <laughs> so she tells me that this is what they did with Kafelnikov. If he played somebody in a set in practice and he wins seven six, he had to run six miles. So you know where I'm going with this. So yeah. now it's seven five. He's got to run five miles. Six four. What, and you just ask kids, okay, so you win six four. What do you have to do? Run four miles. Mm -hmm. And you want to have them do it where they're right in front of you, and you got to stop watch and yeah. So six three, six two, six one, mm -hmm. ah, six one. I can do an easy mile, but six love. I don't have to run. Yeah. And that kid's going to be razor sharp. He's going to focus in on every point. Braden used to tell people, beat their brains in, beat them six oh six oh, and then afterwards ask them take if you can buy. Lunch. Yeah. What's that? Take them to lunch. Yeah. Beat take take them to lunch. Take yeah, lunch. See if you see if you can, uh, you know, ask them for a lemonade. Yeah. But um, no, I think with. Uh, Russian tennis, there's so, so many things to be said. Um, Tsitsipas, um, I think it was Medvedev and Tsitsipas had a little bit of an argument. And yeah. one said the other, you're, you know, maybe it's just because his father is, is, is Greek, but um, you're only half a Russian or yeah. something. But I mean, I don't know you're the internet. Fake Russian. Fake Russian, I don't know, in, in or out. But um, the Russian mentality, my brother was shocked. He said when he first watched Russian hockey players train, that there was a big second hand underneath the, the scoreboard and they had the hockey glove off and they've got the finger to the carotid pulse and they're, mm. they're monitoring their heart rate to how hard they're working. Um, the, uh, but there's something in the water because how many kids, and it's not just Russia, it's also in, certainly from Belarus or from the Ukraine, but how many you know, times are you getting, uh, there's a gal whose last name ends in OVA. Yeah. All the um, time. And, you know, we have a young girl here from Arkansas working really hard, and and she's way behind with the running. Yeah. And um, two sisters, actually. They're getting better. Um, you, can, you can catch up, but that's where, um, you know, you're the, a young player, understandably, they don't have international experience, so their circle's very small. Mm -hmm. The Germans have a word for that, Christmeister. And that should exist in tennis, but it doesn't in this country. Um, the the lens, the, you know, they can only see so much, but it used to be where, okay, I'm going to play in my, you know, the competition to be a member of the team, whether it's individual sport like tennis or a team sport like volleyball. Mm -hmm. So you have team competition, then you have league competition. And then from your league, there's a conference. And then from your conference, there's a section so you go from section, then you have, then you go to states, you know, regionals, nationals. American parents need to understand that it was a mistake 
level two and level three nationals. Yeah. It made tennis way, way too expensive. Um, with, um, you know, it used to be that very few kids would actually uh, play the indoors in comparison to the outdoors. They would play the Thanksgiving indoor tournament. And then there was just clay courts and hard courts. Yeah. Grass, there was just one grass court tournament in the 18s. But people played within their section. Now, and the, the USTA is wising up, is that, you know, it's a $1,500 T-shirt. <laughs> you know, you get on an airplane, you go, and it's a level three nationals. It used to be so bad that you could sign up for four tournaments, four national tournaments. It could be a level two, level three. Yep. And you're waiting to see which one you get accepted in. You yep. could be living, I mean, really beat it up. You could be living in Boston and want to play in Honolulu. Yeah. And you're waiting to the last second to buy the flight. And the kid's not going on their own. So it's at least, you know, one parent, one kid. Yeah. Airfare, getting off the airplane, you know, checking into the, you know, you got to rent a car, check into the hotel, go to the restaurants. And it's just way too much money. So, yeah. Um, but competition, the the real in, the real environment, you know, that's what Daniel Coyle, cultural toughness, it's the four inches or the five inches, the distance between your left ear and your right ear. Yeah. And, you know, that's where kids really have to be tough. Three types of love, soft love, tough love, crazy love. And I don't think you watch Russians train and yelling and screaming at each other. They're not the ones that are crazy. We Americans are the ones that are crazy. Yeah. Like mom and dad, how much money have you invested in your kids' tennis? Yeah. And they, you know, they can't even run a mile. I mean, it, it's bad. Um, but it's, you know, it's the repeat business. You know, let's cheerlead them. Let's tell them they're great. Um, so it'll be interesting to talk to Natalia. Yeah. I think why, I why don't you wrap gonna, it up? I was going to say with, from Daniel Coy's book, the four points, I think, be great to talk to Natalia about these: the early start, the driven parents, the powerful, consistent coaching, and the cultural toughness. You know, and I think with that too is that you know, Alexi, Natalia's husband, they have four children. They have um, two older boys, and then Tacy is a twin mm-hmm. with Timothy. And you know, so you have to go back and go through their ages. But when the two boys were brought to us. They need to do a lot of technical work. And that's something too, is that the many times in tennis, if you study tennis families, it's the first tennis player. They're going down the road. The parents, they're going down the road for the first time. They haven't taken a tennis player down the road. Yeah. So they're going down the road for the first time. And, and it, it's very interesting how some of them right away, it's like they've only been in it three years and they have an opinion. You know, they, they feel like they have some expertise on going down the tennis rope. They've never been down it. Yeah. And and then it even gets more complicated because you have a lot of coaches that it, they've never taken a beginner from you know first base, second base. They've never had taken a kid down the road where they go up different levels. Right. But um, so anyway, the younger player, the younger sibling, many times the older siblings are the ones that help. They teach the parents, and you know, yeah. there's more learning um, when there's more children in a family. I mean, Bjorn Borg, only child. So, you know, I don't want any kids to hear this. Go, gee, right. you know, I don't have any brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, no, it'll be interesting to talk to her. I think um, it's really the Russian mentality. Um, and, you know, why do, and it's it's more Russian women than Russian men, but, you know, wh- why, do they, why have they done so well? 
And, you know, years ago, um, you know, we could get into, we haven't really talked, we will, but talk more about American tennis. What's, what's the decline of American tennis? We have touched upon it tonight is too much money is being spent. Um, it's become too much of a business. We're, we're killing kids with kindness. Um, you know, letting them know, well, um, we have a no cut policy, you know, you don't pl- apply for a job and everybody gets it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there has to be a reality check somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. Russian tennis or tennis in Russia, part one. And then next week we'll be interviewing Natalia Sorokin. Am I saying that right? Hopefully. Yeah. Something like that. And uh, yeah, we'll talk more about her experiences at the Spartak Club and raising her four tennis playing kids. And I'm just going to do a lot of listening because Andy's fluent Russian. Duh. <laughs> yep, when you might. All right. Thanks All a right. lot for listening. Yeah, thank you. And we'll catch you in the next episode.